It'll be all right. <laughs> Let's get the coffee going around. Um, it was a good breakfast. It's always good to celebrate like that, where we join together and, and eat. Uh, we want to take our time to invite our children to uh, Children's Church, uh, grades one through three. If you want to head to the back, uh, your teacher will meet you. Just an age-appropriate setting for uh, studying scriptures uh, for the children. Um, as the exodus occurs, I just wanted to share, Lisa and I last week were in Austin, Texas, uh, for the EFCA National Conference, the Free Church, our denominational national conference. And uh, I, I'm going to share more of it tonight at the business meeting, but I just want to say it was just really encouraging to be there. In, in years past, I've always felt kind of disconnected from the Free Church. I didn't know what the home office had to do for the local church and how we fit together, but uh, this conference felt like they're really working on integrating us better and, and working together, and they, they have some, some clear visions. And so I'll share some of that tonight, but it was just really encouraging to be together. Uh, one quick little story. Uh, we were at lunch, and we sat down at a table with some people we didn't know, and he was the super district superintendent from somewhere in the Midwest, and we were chit-chatting. And another family came up and sat down, and they said, hi, can we join you? Of course. Where are you from? Well, we're from Southern California. Oh, really? Where at? Well, north of L.A. Where at? Uh, the Antelope Valley? Oh, you must be at Lancaster. <laughs> I was like, okay. Nobody knows where Lancaster is. Where are you guys from? He was the pastor of the church in Bishop. And so uh, Lisa and I got to sit and chat with him for a while and, and compare notes. Uh, what kind of things are you guys struggling with? What's it like ministering in, in that area? And uh, So it was kind of funny that we met like that. And I gave him a business card. I said, hey, keep me updated on what's going on with you guys. I want to keep praying for him. So you just never know who you're going to run into there. Uh, it, was, it was pretty neat. So uh, with that, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll take a look at our scripture. Um, Lord, we are anticipating and looking forward to that resurrection day, to be raised in Christ, to rule with Christ, and to enter into, finally, the new heavens and the new earth with Christ in resurrected bodies that Romans explains will be free. That uh, our, our, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that, that we'll be raised not in corruption but in, in eternal life and, and we'll have a spiritual body, however those two words fit together. Uh, Lord, what a glorious promise you've made to us, uh, that you, and you actualize it, you show it, you demonstrate it in Christ's resurrection so that we have a hope. Um, what a glorious truth, Lord. Thank you for such a tremendous promise to us. We certainly don't deserve it. Uh, Father, I want to pray for the Evangelical Free Church of America and many of the initiatives that they have going on, uh, thinking of uh, Reach Global with many missions, outreaches across the, uh, the, the globe to different places. Lord, I love their model of working with other like-minded folks. Um, that just makes so much more sense than competing for real estate. So thank you for that, and I pray for the leadership there that you would uh, bless them and direct them. Uh, Lord, we pray for the, um, the church planting element of uh, the free church having lost their, their leader recently in a house fire. Lord, we, uh, we pray for their family that you would be providing for them and that you would fill that job with someone who can continue to have a clear vision of how to plant free churches and, uh, and build our denomination, not because our denomination needs to be built, but, Lord, as, as a platform to bring the gospel to the nations. Uh, Lord, we pray for our leadership, both at uh, the EFCA, at uh, Trinity, um, and the missions agencies and the different departments. Lord, and for EFCA West, our own district, uh, we pray that you would grant them wisdom. Lord, please be with us now as we look into your word. We need to hear from you. Lord, we, we really desperately need to hear this message. 
Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and especially our, 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 our minds and especially our hearts to receive what it is that you have to say this morning. So, Lord, please come and speak to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you remember, a couple weeks ago I said Jesus had told his last parable. And so this week we're going to look at a parable. So what does that mean? <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't uh, qualify it well enough. Jesus, in chapter 18, the parable of the minas, the, the, the uh, little bit of money that he gave to his servants, that was the last parable he told to his disciples. This parable that he tells this morning, he tells to the people. So you'll remember last week he was teaching in the temple. He was teaching the people, not just his disciples, but the crowd that had gathered in, in, uh, in the temple. He was teaching them, and the leadership of the Jewish nation came up to humiliate him, to embarrass him in front of the people. And in a very expert way, Jesus asks a couple of questions and has them mumbling and stumbling and embarrasses them in front of the people. Well, now what happens is Jesus turns to the people. We get to hear some of the teaching that he was doing. This is some of what he was saying to them. And what it is is kind of shocking <laughs> when, when we look at it. Uh, this is a parable that will actually be helpful for us to understand how do you interpret parables. How, when you read a parable, how do you, how do you interpret it? Because as you heard uh, Fernando read it, I think we all kind of went, yeah, I get that. Right? We feel the moral outrage at the vineyard owner being rebuffed by his tenants. These are people, it's not even their vineyard, it's his and they, they turn away the master. They won't give him what he's due, and he gets angry at them, and he keeps sending people to him and finally sends his son. And so we, we kind of get the moral implication of that. There, this man is due the fruit of this vineyard. That's his, his rightful due, and he gets mad at the people. And so we kind of get the parable, right? It, it's pretty straightforward. Um, until somebody asks you some questions. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't get it. So what's the, par what's the vineyard? Um, who, who's the owner? It, it's, uh, but I, I feel the outrage. So do you see what's going on? You can kind of get what it is says, but sometimes it's helpful to kind of pick through it and take it apart a little bit. So that's what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of pick through the parable and, and we'll take it apart and understand the different components. And then fortunately for us, in the end, Jesus applies it for us. So we don't have to work real hard on application. We'll just go with what Jesus says because he's probably right. I'm, I'm betting his application of the parable is, is the one we want to go with. Um, at least that's the one I want to go with. So let's take a look. So let's, let's begin this. He began to tell the people a parable. And he says, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So this man plants a vineyard. He has a piece of property and he builds up this vineyard. He puts a wall around it. He puts a tower in there so that they can keep the, the critters away. He is, installs a wine press so that they can get wine out of this thing. He builds the hedgerows and, and so that the... the um, the uh, vines can grow, he builds a vineyard. And then he let it out to tenants. These are tenant farmers. So the man owns it, it's all his property, but he brings these other people in who, who he says, you take care of this for me while I'm gone. And the arrangement typically in those days was that a certain percentage would be held by the, the tenants. They would get to keep some of the produce, and so that was their incentive to work, is the more they produced, the more they got. And then the owner, since it's his property, he would come and he would take his portion of it as well. Um, and typically in, in feudal systems like that, the landowner got a lot and the tenants got a little. Um, as we look through this, it doesn't appear that that's the situation. It seems like this, this vineyard owner is a very generous person. So that raises a couple of questions. Who is the man who planted the vineyard? Is it Jesus 
Well, it can't be Jesus because Jesus shows up later as his beloved son. So that this, this must then be God. This must be God who has planted this vineyard. So when we talk about the vineyard owner, we're talking about God. Um, what about the tenants? Who are the tenants, the people who come and take care of this land for him? Um, I, my first reaction was it's probably Israel's leaders because that's who Jesus has just blasted. So he may be turning to the people and giving them a warning. Hey, you know these leaders? Um, the, the commentary I read said that it was probably more than that. It's at least the leaders, but if leaders don't have followers who follow what they're leading, are they leaders? So you can't have just the leaders and then have a bunch of people who aren't following them. This is representative of all of Israel. The people of Israel are the tenants. God, at a certain time, had established them. He led them out of Egypt. He created them as a nation. It was something that he promised he would do with Abraham 400 years earlier. And so he creates this vineyard, and he puts these tenants in there. And so that's, that's what he's given them. Now, what's the vineyard? What does the vineyard represent? Um, this one had me scratching my head for a little bit. I thought, well, is it Jerusalem? Because remember what happens? They take the son, the beloved son, they drag him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. And isn't that what happened in Jerusalem? The Jews took him outside the gate and had him crucified. So maybe it's Jerusalem. Well, the problem with that is they're expecting to inherit the vineyard. They expect to receive the vineyard. The attitude at the time would have been, we own Jerusalem. It's ours. All we want the, the Messiah to do is come and clean it up. We need to kick out the Romans. We need to uh, reform the priesthood and get the temple cleaned up. They weren't expecting to inherit it. They thought they had it. So it's probably not Jerusalem, even though that kind of fits. Um, what about the kingdom of God? Maybe that's what Jesus, he's talked before a number of times about the kingdom of God. Um, well, it, the kingdom of God, he looked at him and he said, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You have to become like a child to inherit it. So there's an inherent component to it as well, isn't there? Were they physically capable of dragging Jesus outside the kingdom of God? <laughs> he's the king. You can't drag the king out of his kingdom. He's the king. So I don't think that's where he's getting at. Um, what, maybe it's the land of Israel. The tenants are the people, so maybe it's the land of Israel. Um, that's a possibility because they expected to inherit it. Remember Samaria, that big chunk in the middle, was with those nasty Samaritans who were mixed breeds. They had confused religion. They had uh, Jews and non-Jews marrying and intermarrying. It was just a mess. Maybe they were expecting to inherit this kingdom, this, this land of Israel, and get the Samaria cleaned up, get the, the uh, Romans out, and, and it would all be theirs. In Acts chapter 1, isn't that what the, the apostles asked Jesus right before the ascension? They looked at him and said, Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel now? So maybe that's where he's going with this. Um, the problem was, did they send Jesus to Rome to execute him? They didn't drag him out of Israel. He was still inside Israel when they killed him. So that's probably not the picture either. So, okay, we've eliminated everything. Any other ideas? Actually, uh, last week I quoted Daryl Bach, the commentator that I've been relying on, and I think he nailed it on this one. What he said is, the vineyard is a place of God's blessing and promise. And I think that encapsulates not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, but also the kingdom of God. All of these things kind of rolled in one. The vineyard represents the place of God's blessing and his promise. And in my understanding of how this works, that would equate to the covenant. Because God's covenants, at their essence, at their heart, is a promise. Right? He, he told Abraham, 
uh, cut up some animals, and I'm going to come and make a covenant with you. And what was Abraham doing when God made the covenant? Sound asleep on the ground. He'd been exhausted from chasing birds away from the carcasses. So God comes and announces to him, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. It was a promise. At the heart of it, it's a promise. When you look at the Mosaic Covenant, there's tons of laws, and there's if you do this, I'll do this. But at the heart of it is a promise. I will be your God, and you'll be my people. What about the covenant God made with David? David, what do you got to do here? He was told, don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. It was nothing. The Davidic covenant is nothing but promise. He just announces to David, this is what I'm going to do. So to be in the place of God's promise and his blessing is to be in his covenant, to be in the covenant with him. And so this is what the vineyard represents. What about the fruit? The grapes that are supposed to come out of the vineyard. Let's hold off on that one to the end. Because I think once we work through it, we'll see what those, what those things really are. Um, now it says that the king, this, this owner had planted a vineyard, and then he went into a far country for a long while. What does that mean? This is a real important clue when it comes to interpreting parables. It doesn't mean anything. It's just necessary for the storytelling. Did God depart? Has he gone away? Is he detached from, from what's going on in creation? No, we believe that God is ubiquitous. He's everywhere. He's with us here now. He's with Christians on the other side of the globe. God did not go away. He didn't depart from his covenant promise, his blessing to his people. This is just a, a necessary part of storytelling because the vineyard owner is not going to go into the vineyard and, con and confront the tenants directly. So Jesus adds this little thing. So when you read a parable... Don't feel like you have to assign deep, rich meaning to every little component of it. Sometimes it's just there for storytelling. It's just there to make the parable work. And that's what's happening here, is, is um, the other country is, is immaterial. It's just to get the owner away so that he can send tenants. Um, the same thing, by the way, is true later on when he says, you know what I'll do? I'll send my son. Perhaps they'll respect him. It's not like God sent Jesus into the world going, well, let's flip a coin. Hopefully this turns out well. I'm not sure what's going to happen. It's just not biblical language to, to say that God didn't know what was going to happen to Jesus. As a matter of fact, when the church gathers early on, I think it was Acts chapter 4, when they gather and they pray, they say that all of these have, things happened exactly as you predetermined, including Jesus' uh, crucifixion. So again, that idea of him sending his son and saying, maybe this will work, just storytelling. You don't have to get into all the details on that. So that sets us up, right? So we got a vineyard, we've got tenants, we've got a man who owns it who's not present in the story. So what happens next? When the time came, he sent servants to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that we, the inheritance is ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So when the time came, the vineyard had been established. It had been planted. The vineyard owner let it go for a few years. One of the commentators said five years. I don't know how they came up with that, but five years, sure, that sounds great. What, what the vineyard owner is doing is he's letting those, those grapevines grow and get established. 
And the first couple of years, they're not going to produce particularly well. It's going to take a while to get that soil um, uh, augmented so there's enough food in it to get the water built to figure out what the right balance is. So he waits a period of time. He lets that vineyard sit, and he asks nothing out of it for a period of time. At the right time, though, he sends a servant to the tenants and says, I would like some of the fruit. And this is where I said that this vineyard owner is very generous. He wants some. He doesn't come in and demand his share. He doesn't want all of it. He doesn't say, look, you guys have had five years of it. I'm taking everything this year. He comes in, he says, look, I would like some of my fruit. I would like some of the produce from this, this investment of mine. When you plant a garden or a vineyard, why do you do it? You expect something out of that, don't you? If you plant a vegetable garden, you're anticipating vegetables. If you plant a flower bed, you're expecting to see nice flowers and beautiful birds and maybe butterflies or something. You, you expect something out of it. So that's a reasonable thing to do. Imagine if you were to get some money and say, I want to make an investment. I'm going to spend some money. And so I'm going to buy a building and I'm going to renovate it. And I'm thinking of this just because there's one right up by the train tracks. They bought this building, they renovated it, they turned it into an auto, hobby sh- or an auto body shop. So let's say you did that. You went in, you, you bought the building, you cleaned it up, you bought the equipment, you got it all set up, and then you went to an auto body mechanic in town and said, hey, I just want you to use my building, and I'm going to expect some profit off of that. And so they come in and they start using the building. And you would expect at some point to come in and say, you know what, you've been established for a while, a business is doing pretty well, I'm, I'm ready to take my share. Right? You'd want some of that money back because you invested in that. That's what the picture is of the, the man who owns the vineyard. He has invested in this vineyard, and now it's time to get some return off of it. So he sends a servant, and they beat him, and they send him away empty. It, it's, the translation's empty-handed. That's probably not a bad translation, but at its root, it's just empty. They send him with nothing. They just kick him out of the, the, um, the vineyard. Now, if my body shop had done that, if I sent to uh, one of my accountants to the body shop and said, hey, time for accounting, I want some profit, and they beat him up and they send him out, what would you do? I'd be calling the cops. Hey, this is assault. I want these guys taken care of. What does the owner of the vineyard do? His response is, I'm going to send another one. And so they send another one, and it gets worse. Not only do they beat him, but they treat him shamefully. And they send him away empty-handed. So he comes in, they smack him around, maybe they pants him and send him out into the street empty-handed. They treat him shamefully. It was terrible. And so at this point, I'm like, dude, I'm changing the locks. <laughs> you guys are out of here. And, and I'm, if my tenants don't sue you, I'm going to sue you. If my, my accountants don't sue you, I'm going to sue you. This is ris- ridiculous. What does our vineyard owner do? He sends a third one. So the third one comes in, and this time, not only do they, treat, they slap him around and treat him shamefully, they wounded him. The word for wounded is, tr- is where we get the word for trauma. This is like blunt force trauma. They smacked him in the head with a tire iron or something. I mean, they just about killed this guy, and again, they sent him away empty-handed. Once more, my response at this point is, call the cops, we're locking this place down. These folks are going to jail. This is ridiculous. What does our, landlord, our, our uh, vineyard owner do? I know what I'll do. They haven't respected my servants. I'll send my very own son, the son that I love so much. Surely when they meet him, everybody loves my son. They will respect him, and they'll give me what my due is. 
And what do they do to the son? They drag him out of the auto body shop and throw him into traffic and kill him. So you, you get this mounting, it just gets worse and worse until finally the vineyard owner says, what am I going to do with these people? The picture that's painted here is, who are the servants? The servants are the prophets that God has sent to Israel repeatedly. He sent them to Israel and he said, look, you've been in the position of blessing and now it's time for you to provide the fruits. And again, we'll get to the fruits in a minute. And what do they do to the prophets? They beat them up. They slap them around. They ignore them. They send them away. They kill them. Now, as I was thinking about that, I was like, well, where's the example of this? And, and so I found a couple examples. The first one is 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah, you remember Elijah had this run-in with the prophets of Baal up on the mountain. <laughs> he insults them. He says, look, we'll just put our, our sacrifices out, and the God who answers, he's the true and living God. And the prophets of Baal are dancing around. They're cutting themselves. They're, they're crying out. They're screaming and hollering. And, and Elijah winds them up. He says, call a little louder. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's indisposed. Maybe he's in the restroom. Keep yelling, you guys. And nothing. And then Elijah says, okay, here's my sacrifice. Pour water on it. Not enough. Pour more. Okay, so pour it one more time. And then he calls out to Yahweh. And Yahweh consumes not only the sacrifice, but the altar and the water and everything around it. Tremendous victory, right? Elijah then takes off and runs. <laughs> He's scared for his life. And his response, when, when an angel comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is how Elijah responds. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They tore down your altars and they killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So this is Elijah's response. He's looking at Israel and he said, look what they've done to your prophets. They've killed all your prophets. They tear down your altars. They establish this Baal worship right in your face. And he's very upset about it. Now the good news here is God says, you're not alone. I have reserved 700 for myself. Don't think you're alone. There's a remnant. I'm still hanging on to my people. But this is that picture of Israel kills the prophets. God sends the prophets to them and says, it's time to receive the fruit. And their response is, kill him. So the prophets come and they're asking for the fruit of the, the, the vineyard. And then finally God says, you know what, I'm going to send my son. And so Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, comes and walks into the camp. He walks into the vineyard and he says, I have great news. It's time to give God his portion. And what's their response? They look at God eternal, the second person of the Trinity, who there was never a day when he wasn't, and they hate him. They hate his guts. They watch what he does. They see his miracles, and their response is, we've got to kill this guy. That's an, a horrible response to what God is about to do for them. So that idea of the, the unpardonable sin, remember we talked about that briefly a while ago. What is this unpardonable sin? This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not to say the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. It's to look at what the Holy Spirit has done, say, yes, God has done this. This is a, a miraculous work, and then say, it's Satan who's working at it. To recognize the miracle and attribute it to Satan. And it's unpardonable because where are you going to go at that point? You have now cut yourself off from the only true and living God. You said his work is of the devil. So that's that unpardonable sin. That's what these people are doing is they're looking at God and they're saying, we hate your guts. Would you get out of our face and just let us have the vineyard? 
God, we want the stuff. We don't want you. Please go away. And when he says no, and he sends his son, they say, well, we're just going to have to kill you then. We can't have this vineyard with you in it. We just want the vineyard. We want the blessing. And so he asked then, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What is now the right response at this point? I've been too quick to pull the trigger. I wanted to do this early on. God's much more long-suffering, much more patient. Jesus says, what will the owner do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the crowd gets it. They understand exactly what this parable means because their response is, surely not. God is not going to cut us off. He's not going to come and destroy us. How did they get this? How did they understand what that parable was that Jesus was speaking exactly to them? It's because Jesus is not speaking in a vacuum. The picture that that they're relying on, the picture that they're connecting with is from Isaiah chapter 5. This is how Isaiah chapter 5 begins. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled on. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned, and it shall not be pruned and hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this is the parable that they have in mind. They just connected that with what Jesus is saying. Now notice that the, the parallels don't line up exactly, though, do they? Did Jesus misquote this parable, misinterpret it? The vineyard is the house of Israel. And I said the vineyard is the place of blessing. The tenants are the house of Israel. Well, what's going on here is Jesus is not misinterpreting it. He's not misquoting it. He hasn't gotten it wrong. What he's doing is he's applying it in a different way. So, for example, if I was to say to a certain age group in this, this church, whomsoever will, let's say we had some sort of outreach event, and I said, look, we need people to come and work at this outreach, outreach event, whomsoever will. If you're of a certain age, you know what that phrase, the rest of that phrase is. Whomsoever will shall come and be saved. I am not telling you if you come and work at this outreach event, you shall be saved. What I'm saying is we're doing this outreach so that we can invite people in, so that salvation is part of it, but not for us. We're inviting the nations in. So that, that's using biblical language in a slightly different way. That's exactly what Jesus has done here with this parable from Isaiah, is he's using the imagery. They get the imagery but he's adjusting it to the use that he wants for it. So they bring with them everything that has been said in Isaiah chapter 5. Now, the immediate application of Isaiah chapter 5 is the exile. That is exactly what Isaiah was talking about. He was warning Israel, you're going to get swept away. When God talks about tearing down the hedge and, and opening it up and letting it be trampled, he's talking about bringing in the nation to sweep you away. 
And so when the people hear this, they're thinking, but we were in exile and we've come back from exile and now surely God is not going to do this to us again. Haven't we learned our lesson? Look at how pure we are. We're following the laws. We put away the, the Ashtoreth and the Baals. Um, we're following Yahweh. Surely that's the blessing, right? This is not going to happen to us. And what Jesus is doing by taking this parable and giving it that little tweak is he's saying, you folks never went into exile. You never went into the exile that God wanted. He sent you into exile to draw you to himself, to take away all of those things that you had so that you would look and say, all I have is Yahweh. And what happened when you return? You built his temple, you built the walls of Jerusalem, and then you began to focus on who's in and who's out. Nehemiah spends his, most of his time saying, well, you can be a priest and you can't, and, and you've got to put that wife away and this kind of thing. That's not a bad idea when you're reconstituting. 400 years later, I think it's done. And that was still what the Pharisees were doing, is you're in, you're out. We're good, you're bad. Where's God in any of that? In, in all of these rules, where is God? Where's the worship of God in any of that? He's not there. They don't care about him. And you want, it, you want proof that they don't care about him? They killed Jesus. They don't care about God. They care about their rules. They care about their covenant. They care about their position. That's all they're interested in. We've covered the rules, Lord. You owe us. That's the picture. So now when we get to this point where he's asking, what shall he do? He's going to kick them out, and he's going to bring in different tenets. That's not what the picture was from Isaiah, but that's where Jesus is applying it. And what he's looking at here is he's saying, look, Israel, I have put up with you for years and years and years. I have endured your heresy for a long time, and now is the time I sent my beloved son to you, and this is the pinnacle. This is the most I could possibly do for you to draw you into a relationship with me, to get you to focus on me and not yourself. And what do you do? You drag him outside Jerusalem and you kill him. What am I going to do to you, Israel? I'm going to throw you away and give this, this uh, vineyard to another people. Now, I want you to be careful at this point. I am not saying at this point that all Jews now are cut off. It can't possibly be. The, the apostles were Jews. He, Jesus didn't cut them off and replace them with Gentiles. So what do I mean by saying that this is God cutting off Israel? What it is is it's God rejecting Israel as the nation. He's saying, I'm going to take you out of this position of blessing. I'm going to remove you because you have rejected, you have murdered my own son. I sent you the Messiah, and you said you don't want him. Where I get the imagery for this is from Romans chapter 11. Now, Romans chapter 11 comes at the end of a section of Romans where Paul is asking the very question we're asking right now, what about Israel? I thought they were the promised people. It starts in chapter 9. Not all Israel are Israel. Paul says, look, in, in chapter 10, I, I, would, I would lose my own salvation if I could save the nation, if I could save my brothers according to the flesh. And so now we get to chapter 10, and this is where God... Uh, where Paul is beginning to unpack exactly what he means here. So listen to this. This is starting in verse 17. He, he takes this image of an olive tree, this picture of this beautiful olive tree producing olives, starting in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, by what, uh, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own eyes, I, want you to un- I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So do you see the picture that he, he paints here? There's, there's this natural tree that's growing. And at a certain point, the dresser comes in. He looks at the branches. He said, this branch isn't producing any olives. Snip. This branch is producing olives. We'll just trim that back a little bit so it can produce more. And so what happens is at the foot of this olive tree, there are a bunch of unfruitful branches scattered around. And the, the dresser looks at it. He says, well, I got all these bare spots. And he goes to a fruitful wild olive tree, and he starts plucking branches and grafting them in so that they'll grow. That's the imagery that he paints. That's exactly what he's talking about in this vineyard. You tenants, you're unfruitful. You won't give me any of my fruit. I'm casting you out and I'm bringing other ones in, wild ones. Tenants from another location, they're coming in. So when, what the picture shows us here is not all the branches were cut off. Not all Israel is removed. And the good news is, he said, look, if some of these branches start producing fruit, I can stick them right back where they were. I can graft them right back in. So it's not saying all of Israel is cut off, all Jews are removed from the covenant now. What it says is their position as the nation of Israel has been shattered. They ruined it. But don't miss this last part. In the middle of this, in in all of this wild branches being grafted in stuff, all of a sudden Paul says something very curious. He says, don't be wise in your own sight. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Not a complete hardening. It's not all of Israel. It's a partial hardening. A portion of Israel has become hardened until the full number of the Gentiles is brought in. Brought into what? The covenant tree, this tree that represents God's covenant people. The full number of the Gentiles is brought in. Once that happens, then what? Then all Israel will be saved. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. You could look at that and say the ingrafting of the Gentiles and the existence of the fruitful Jews is all Israel. That's the new Israel. So once the fullness of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel is saved. That's one way to interpret it. The problem is you've got Israel meaning two different things in the same sentence because a partial hardening has happened to Israel and all Israel will be saved. So that's a possibility. It's the one I favor, but the one that's easier to read is that there is a partial hardening of Israel, the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, and then God brings revival to his nation. Israel recognizes their Messiah and they turn to him. That makes a lot more sense because they're partially hardened and at the right time, the hardening is broken and they're brought in. I think it's, that's the, the more natural way to read it. The good news here is God can bring revival. God can bring people from a state of not trusting him, of hating his covenant, hating his blessings, to loving him. And he can do it in large scales. One of the, conference, one of the parts of the conference I went to was a, a study on revivals throughout American history. And it's been amazing what God can do. Even in this nation, 
in America, as hardened as it's becoming, as indifferent to religion, as hostile to religion as it is, God could still bring revival here. The Jews hated Jesus and killed him. To this day, faithful Jews say he ain't the Messiah. We're looking for somebody else. And in the midst of that, the promise is all Israel will be saved. God can bring revival to the hardest of hearts. That's tremendously good news. So when the people look at Jesus and say, surely not, the answer is maybe not. God can bring revival. He can can save these people. All right, I've been putting this off long enough. What's the fruit? What is the fruit? So as, as God now has threatened the people, he said, look, you were in the position of blessing. You were in the position of promise, and you, you neglected it. You refused to provide the fruit. What's the fruit? The fruit is when God pours his blessing out on people, when he secures them with his promise, what is the only right reasonable response to that? It is to love the Lord. If somebody was to come up to you and say, let me pay all your bills, let me buy you some new clothes, let me give you a room in my house, and did all of this expecting nothing in return from you, the only logical response is to respond with love to this person. How can they be so generous to me? How can they be so kind to me? So this covenant blessing that God has for people, what he expects from them is not improved morality. The Pharisees had improved morality in buckets. They were all over improved morality. They were more moral than God. They improved on his rules. They didn't go far enough. You say do this, we're going to go an extra mile. God's promise, what he expects from his, his, his covenant promise, his, his vineyard, is not improved morality from his people, not better rule following. What he expects first and foremost from his people is a relationship for his people to respond to him and say, I love this. I love you. How could you be so generous to me? Why would you forgive me your, your, uh, my sins? And that really then kind of taps on the shoulder and says, wait a minute, remember the, the parable said that they drug him out of the vineyard and killed him. Did they drag Jesus out of the covenant and kill him? Not really, but think about what he did. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. That's that picture is Jesus goes outside the bonds of the the blessing and the promise of the covenant so that he can bear away our sins so that we then can come into the vineyard. And when, when God does that, what he expects from us is he expects fruit. Look at what I have done for you, new tenants. Look at the length to which I have gone. I have taken care of your sin. I've carried it away from the camp. Your sin is washed away. Now, when I send a servant to you, are you going to beat him? Are you going to send him away empty-handed? The nature of the new covenant, the answer to that, because of the nature of the new covenant, is no way. When God promised a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, he said, this is my covenant that I will make with them. I will write my law on their hearts. In Ezekiel, he promises this new covenant will be replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That's the nature of the new covenant is God regenerates us. He seals us with his Holy Spirit so that we will respond with the fruit that he's looking for. So let's finish this section out. The last part I said was the application of it. 
How does Jesus apply this? He looked directly at them. This is in response to surely not. He looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the rejected, who's rejected in the parable? The beloved son is rejected. And he says, this beloved son now has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on it will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So which one do you want to be? Do you want to have the stone fall on you and crush you? Or do you want to fall on the stone and, uh, and be broken to pieces? Which is, the be- which is the best answer here? Always made me pause. I'm going, I don't know. <laughs> they both sound pretty horrible. Well, the, the truth of it is, neither one is what you should do. What do you do with a cornerstone? Do you drop it on people? Do you go falling on top of a cornerstone? No, what you do with a cornerstone is you figure out where you want your building planted, you put the cornerstone in, and then you build off of that. So the right answer here is don't fall on the stone and don't have the stone fall on you. The answer is get lined up with the stone and become a part of this building. And that's what Peter's getting at. This this quote from um, the cornerstone that's rejected is from Psalm 118, and it's used repeatedly through the New Testament. Peter's One of Peter's favorite verses uh, as he preaches and, and he teaches, is that, that psalm. So in 1 Peter 2, this is how he explains it. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by man in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So which one do you want to do? Do you want to fall on the stone or have the stone fall on you? Neither one. You want to line up with the stone and be a living stone built into this big, huge building, this this temple, this place of worship and praise. So neither one of them is the right one. So the people reject the cornerstone, and the, the owner of the vineyard comes and says, you're out. And he begins to bring in new people and build up this new temple. His, Jesus' application here is don't miss this opportunity. So the people are responding, surely not. They're terrified by what's going to happen. In a few short days, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Does that mean they're, they're done? They're cut off? What happened on Pentecost? Forty days after the resurrection of Jesus, what happened? 4,000 people in a day turn to Jesus Christ, Jews who have come into the Jerusalem. So just because they reject him at this point, it's not over for them yet. There's still another one. God is still patient. He sends his prophets. He sends his son. They kill his son, and then he still gives them an opportunity to repent. This is grace upon grace. He's looking for them to join in, to fall in line with the cornerstone instead of falling on the cornerstone. And so for us, how does this apply for us? Now, he said, he said this to the people, this is not a disciple or a, a, a parable for his disciples, and yet the disciples were there and they heard it. Peter repeated this over and over again. He mentions it in uh, Acts chapter 4. He repeats it in 1 Peter. It's, it's a common theme for him. So while the threat of being thrown out of the vineyard is not directly for us, the application is for us. So let's look at what would the discipleship principle be for this particular parable. Well, first of all, I think that the application is, what are you producing, Vineyard? 
When the servant comes and says, the master wants his portion, what are you providing? What are you supplying to the master? Are you saying, well, look, I did Bible study five times this week. Prayed four times. Didn't watch that one TV show because it's nasty. Is, is that what the, the king is looking for? Is he going, oh, good, you've cleaned up your act? What the king expects, first and foremost, those other things are not bad. I'm not trying to denigrate them. But the fruit that the king is looking for is a heart of love to the king. And, and as we look at this, we go, well, thank heavens that you know, I'm saved. Uh, once saved, always saved. I can't lose my salvation. I made the profession. I'm good, right? I'm not going to get kicked out of the vineyard. Well, praise God that that's true. But you still have to ask the question because think of, for example, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. What happens in Revelation 2 and 3? That's a letter to seven churches. Jesus writes letters to seven churches. What do those seven churches represent? Seven churches. <laughs> it's not a time period. It's not an era. It's not a stage of growth or degress in a church. It's seven churches. And the threat is live. He says, I will remove your lampstand if you don't do this. So yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and once we're saved, we can't lose that. But the question is, how do you know? And the answer is, look to the fruit. So don't think that we're secure and we don't ever have to do anything. We can just continue to provide God with all our moral upbringing, or our moral uprightness, and he'll be very pleased. He's looking for a live and living relationship. That relationship should produce praise. Wonder at who God is. What has he done? It should produce love. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that God would put up with somebody like me. How can he love me so greatly? I, 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 that's the kind of person I want to love. I want to be around. Thankfulness. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for me. It's that relationship that he wants. And so how do we get that? How does he communicate that to us in the new covenant so we don't have a repeat where he comes through and he kicks out all the tenants again? It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's the seal, the guarantee of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. So in Romans 5.5, 5, it says, God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. So the Holy Spirit comes and fills our hearts with a love for God. Galatians 5, um, he talks about, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So what fruit are you producing in your life? These are the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is what connects you to God. That's the sign and seal, pardon me, of the new covenant. And so that's what that is. So, folks, take a look at your life and ask yourself, where's the fruit? What does the fruit look like? If you look at yourself and you say, I had fruit 20 years ago. Be afraid. If you look at your life and you say, where's the fruit? And all you can do is point to somebody else and say, there's the fruit. That should worry you. Let that trouble you. You may be in danger of being a tenant that's kicked out. What if you don't see any fruit? I can remember hitting that point in my life as a Christian. I went, I, I just don't see anything. I spent a week on the couch depressed. It terrified me. It also motivated me. So 
one of the things you need to do, though, is as you're evaluating yourself, as you're looking at yourself and saying, is there fruit in my life, the love, the peace, the joy, the patience, those kind of things, is if I'm looking at my life, if I don't see that, then what do I do? Well, first of all, don't measure yourself against other Christians. You're not called to be a Billy Graham. You're not called to be more holy than John Piper or John MacArthur, or whoever your theological hero is. Don't measure yourself against that. All of the fruits, no quantities are given, right? Love, joy, peace, there's no quantities, only qualities. So be, first of all, analyze yourself honestly. Do, do I see this in me at all? And if you don't, or if you haven't seen it for a long time, or you feel that that's grown cold, call out to God. Ask the Holy Spirit to work in you again. That's the kind of prayer that God would delight to answer. He would love to answer that prayer in your life. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened. Right? Here's the promise you've got. God is more than willing to give you this. And here's how Jesus explains that. For everyone who seeks, or everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will instead give him a scorpion? What father would do that to his children? Well, if you who are evil, by the way, you're evil, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So the whole knock and, and it will be opened, ask and you'll receive, the, the base of that promise is, and God will pour out his Holy Spirit on you. So if you analyze your life and you say, I'm worried about the quantity of fruit, I'm worried about the dearth of fruit in my life, cry out to God, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and produce that fruit. And God loves to answer that kind of prayer. It, it, it thrills his heart to say, you want more of me? You got it. I will give you more of me in, in great and wonderful ways. Ask God for more of him, and he'll give it. And isn't that something? You ask, the, the, what produces the fruit in your life is knowing more about God, seeing more of who he is, watching who he is. Here's the promise from Exodus 33, right? Moses has, has received the Ten Commandments. He's up on the hill, and he says, Yahweh, I want more of you. Show me your glory. He says uh, in verses 12 and 13, Moses said to Yahweh, Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I might know you. Why? In order that I might favor, find favor in your sight. I want to know more of who you are so that I can be more pleasing to you. Peter picks that up in 2 Peter 1.3. He says, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things. How many things? Most things? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So if you want more fruit in your life, you draw closer to God. You seek more of who God is, not more of God's rules. And that will equip you for life and godliness, by the way. It's not like you can then go off and live like a sinner or something. Drawing closer to God, getting to know who God is, Lord, show me your ways, produces life and godliness in you you will begin to see more of that fruit. And that's, like I said, that's a promise, that's a blessing, that's a prayer that God loves to bestow on his people. So if you analyze your life this week, if you sit back and look honestly and go, not happy, cry out to the Lord. Lord, I don't pray enough. Would you lead me to pray? He would love to do that. 
Lord, I don't, I don't spend enough time meditating on your word. Would you lead me to meditate on your word more? He loves to answer that. Lord, I really feel like I don't know who you are. Would you show me more of yourself? He will love to answer that. That would be the greatest thing that he would, he would delight to do for you. So in the end, what we have to do is don't get kicked out of the, the uh, vineyard. Don't get excluded from the vineyard. It's a place of God's promise and his blessing. And it's brought to you. You are brought in. We stand there because the son was rejected instead of us. So that we could be brought into the garden. What God is looking for at this point, and this is why it's at this point in the gospel, is God is looking for people who will come to himself, people who will seek him, keep people who draw near to him. He comes to Israel and he says, Israel, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking for, and what do they do? Reject him again. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want you. And so instead, he says, then I'll go get other people. That was the picture from the parable about the, the dinner party. Tell the people who I've invited to come in, and they all start making excuses. He says, go out into the streets and drag them in. Lord, there's still room. Go out into the, way, the, the highways and drag them in. I want this dinner party filled, and God will have his dinner party filled. So that's the, the warning and the promise. That's why it's at this point in the gospel, as we're in Jerusalem, we're heading to the cross. What we're seeing is this growing diversion between God's people and God. And in the midst of that is this promise that he's going to draw more people in. He's going to draw more to himself. So two things. Pray. Ask God for more of him. Look for fruit in your life. If you're not seeing it, ask him for more of him, and you'll get it. And second of all, pray for revival. Pray for revival. God is able to revive even the Jews. That's the promise. Even those who have said, no, Jesus isn't it. He's able to revive them. Surely he can do that in our country as well. He can bring this country back to an understanding of who he is. Surely that's possible. And, and I saw a um, Pew Research survey about the nuns, those who say they have no religious affi affiliation. They asked why. The vast majority said, we simply don't believe anymore. You know what that means? This is not a moral problem. This is not a... Uh, a, a problem of social action. It's not a problem of church structures. It is a spiritual problem. P people simply are not believing. Pray. The way that you overcome that is we need to pray. Pray for ourselves. Pray for our nation. Pray for our valley. Pray for our city. And that's the threat and the promise in this parable is that God is able and he will. So I just encourage you one more time, pray this week. Ask God, for, even if you're happy with the amount of fruit in your life, ask for more of him, and guess what? Probably wind up with more fruit. Would that be bad? <laughs> Would the servant come and go, oh, that's too much, surely, keep some. Go ahead and praise yourself for a while. <laughs> you deserve it. No, God would be delighted to have more from you. So pray, and pray for our nation. Pray for the nation of Israel, that they would have re uh, revival. Because you know what has to happen before they have revival? The fullness of the Gentiles have to be brought in. And then all Israel will be saved. So pray for Israel, great. Engage world missions so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. And then all Israel will be saved. It's a win-win. You can't lose by praying for these things. There's, there's only one way out of this, and that God gets more glory. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Let's practice that now. Let me pray with us. Lead us in prayer now. Lord, I, I know for myself, I need more of you. I need to see more of you. 
I want to understand more deeply who you are. Lord, I want to see Jesus more clearly. Holy Spirit, I want to experience you, walk with you, walk, keep in step with you more closely. And so, Lord, would you grant me that? Would you grant me more of you? And, Lord, I pray for all of my friends here um, that we would all get more of who you are. Lord, would you meet us in all the ways that you've laid before us, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, service, all of these things that you've given us, and we have it in buckets here in America. Lord, would you use those things to give us more of you first and foremost so that we might have everything we need for life and godliness? Lord, we long to see all Israel be saved. And to that end, Lord, would you bring, would you continue to bring in the full number of the Gentiles? And Lord, I would pray for the Gentiles and the unbelieving Jews here in the Antelope Valley that they might be grafted in as well. Bring them into your olive tree. Welcome them to yourself. Lord, would you spark revival in our nation? It's happened numerous times in the past. You are able. You are more than able to do these things. And so we call on you and say, Lord, bring revival to the United States one more time. Turn us back. Turn our hearts back to you. And Lord, in the midst of all of it, we just pray that we would be good and faithful tenants in your vineyard reaping the blessings that you bestow on us and giving to you the fruit that you demand, the fruit that you rightly deserve, our worship, our praise, our love, our thanksgiving. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name because he's the one who brought us in. Amen.